0: BAFTA creates platforms for open debate, and so the views expressed in this programme are only those of the contributors. Hello, and welcome to the BAFTA podcast. My name's Katie Campbell, and as it's the TV awards season, today we're recording from BAFTA HQ, as the final preparations are taking place for the Arkiva British Academy Television Awards. If you've ever wondered what makes British television production the envy of the world, you're about to find out the answers from the people behind Parade's End, 2012, The Girl and The Hour. Stay with us so at the time of recording we're days away from the archiva british academy television awards where the actors and producers are celebrated but this month we thought we'd talk to the talent below the line writers designers directors of photography the skilled craftspeople that deliver the director's vision often under intense pressure John Morton made his name writing mockumentaries such as People Like Us and parodies like Broken News. His latest hit, the BAFTA-nominated 2012, is set behind the scenes at the organising committee for the London Olympics, and it gained a reputation for predicting real-life Olympic foul-ups just before they happened. So, did John have intelligence from inside the real committee? I asked him earlier.
1: The truth is, really, there was no secret mole in the camp. It was all, it was all made up. But, once we existed, as it were, they were really helpful to us and on our side. Because I think, I, I think they they realised quite early on that it wasn't going to be, you know, a kind of devastating, coruscating demolition of them. Uh, but there was a screening that we did for them, which they asked us to do, a breakfast screening, which was quite nerve-wracking. And I did have to say... And they were all there, uh, including Sebco, you know. So I did have to say at the beginning, look, none of these people are supposed to be you. You know, we are no mole spy in your camp, um, it's all made up, please believe me. And I think by about ten minutes into the, the first screening, they kind of realised it was silly enough to, to laugh at, I hope.
2: Yes, uh, there's another email from Danny Boyle's people.
3: Oh, right, brilliant, what now?
2: Yes, sir. apparently he wants more nurses.
3: Well, we all do, I haven't seen one all morning.
2: Yes, no, they want more nurses in the opening ceremony to represent. Yes,
3: I know, to represent nurses.
2: Yes, but apparently there aren't enough of them.
3: OK, well, fine, get some more then.
2: Yes, no, I think his point is that there aren't enough nurses in the NHS, actually.
3: No, well, what's he expect us to do about that? Yes. I mean, he'll just have to have fewer nurses dancing harder.
2: Right. I mean,
3: Benny Hill managed it. Let's see why he can't.
0: Yes, no, not a problem. Obviously, it has a kind of timely... It was building up to a big event. Are you now under pressure to spin something off or are we likely to see something in the same world, see the characters again?
1: Well, there was, (laughs) predictably, towards the end of... Perhaps towards the end of the run, uh, there was a sort of, can there be... Surely there can be more... Um, but I kept saying, I think the clues in the title, it's 2012, and um, it's about the Olympics. And you know, I felt that whatever you, whatever you tried to make these characters do, it's never going to be bigger than the Olympics. I mean, it just is the biggest show on earth. But I always did say that if I could think of a way of spinning, say, a character out of it, like um, analogy would be with how, say, Frazier spun out of Cheers, but was nothing to do with Cheers. But there was a sort of hinterland which he came from. If I can think of a way of doing that, then that would be something I might consider. And I think I will do that. Well, I I am going to do that, but I'm not not quite sure how much I can say about that. But yes, there'll there'll be not... It won't be 2012... But if, I think it'd be something that, if anybody's interested, they can trace the, the dots back to 2012. Meanwhile, it's
3: Thursday, and after another night in hospital, Ian is still waiting for news on the minor infection on his food. Oh,
2: and I checked in on uh, the office phone for messages. Oh, right, yes, good. And there's one from your solicitors, actually.
3: Right, yes.
2: Um, they want to know where to send some. the. Um,
3: divorce papers? Uh,
2: yes, actually, I think they were. Yes. I think you need to sign them. Well, yes. Yes, yeah, so they were asking, should they send them to your home address or to here?
3: Right, yes, No, I was meant to get back to them about that. I
2: mean, shall I just say to send them here,
0: you know, speed things up a bit?
3: Uh, well, no, I think I might just wait until I know for certain what I'm doing. Yep. Yeah,
1: right. With the foot, I mean.
0: Oh, yes, absolutely, right. Yeah. And also, obviously, the form of 2012 is mock, sort of a mockumentary style. How does your craft, your approach to it differ, and how, how, how do you write something specifically for mockumentary?
1: Uh, it's sort of accidental that, that when I was getting started, that was the first thing that got... That got commissioned. It was first a thing I think I did on radio, that went to telly called "People Like Us," which was a mock documentary a long time ago. Um, but that I never set out to. None of this. I think looking backwards, you can see a, you know, a path that led to this point. But that was never looking coming. If you could spin back to the beginning, that was never a path I plotted. It was just that that was the first thing that was picked up of this scattergun of things I sent off when I was trying to get going. And so there is a sense of people then know you for that and. You know, as in all bits of the industry, you get you get invited to or expected to or gently steered towards doing more of that. Um, and so this was the I suppose that's why people might have thought that I might be able to do something about about, about the Olympic thing. It's an interesting object lesson really in in being restricted by a grammar uh, up to a point, which is which is a restriction. You know, so it's a limitation on what you can do. But as ever, when you know what the parameters are, almost aesthetically, you can be, I think, creative within those quite narrow boundaries. If you, if there are no restrictions, I don't know how you operate. I mean, we've in you know, so twenty twelve, it presents itself sort of as a documentary, but actually, you know, a moment's reflection, you know, you, you become obvious that we break all the rules in terms of coverage. None, you know, endless shots that you couldn't have got if it was a documentary. But it's a, it's a, like a conjuring trick where you think, well, I think what's sort an of audience is invested in the characters, hopefully. Or the what's going to happen next they won't worry about quite how we got the shot of you talking to me <laughs> uh, at the same you know they won't they'll just, they'll just buy it and so it's it's having fun with a particular kind of grammar and trying to be creative you know, with, with the restrictions that it bring, brings to the table.
0: That was John Morton and we all look forward to the 2012 spin-off. Remember you heard it here first. Leading the pack this year was BBC Two's Parade's End. The Edwardian drama had five nominations at the awards. Earlier, we spoke to the winner for costume design, Sheena Napier, about how she worked with director Susanna White.
4: I think very often this period is done for its prettiness in a way. It's for it, you can cover it in lace and you know have big hats and do you know, all that. And I just wanted to pare it down to something that was... Simple and very, still beautiful, I hope, you know, but very easy to wear and, and just good fabrics, rich fabrics. I mean, Susanna said if it would be, you saw somebody walking down Marylebone High Road in it, you wouldn't turn your head, and of course you would, but you know, I hope but anyway, but, uh, uh, but you know, it's that sort of feel of something that is, is the costume doesn't get in the way of the character. You don't, you're not looking at, you know, all this mad stuff going on and lots of jewellery and lots of everything, so that you've just got a simplicity of line.
2: I'm concerned for Edward. Campion? Mm, Why has he got a glorified quartermaster's job fitting out troops for General Perry's command?
5: Because it's a vital job and Campion does it superbly. But General Perry's command is the only fighting command that might become free. He's taken to getting his friends to write to the Times about being starved of troops.
2: Edward Campion should have the sort of job which brings a hero's welcome and a... Peerage at the end of it. And from that, who knows? Perhaps India? India? Viceroy of India? Why not? A general served with great distinction in India.
1: Actually, that's well said.
4: On a normal project, you have about five weeks prep. Obviously, there was a little bit of time between knowing I had the job and the job starting, so I would buy lots of books and look at them on the internet, go to the museums. What's wonderful about this period is that you can get photographs of real people. They're not just posed photographs in studios or you know, family photographs. You actually see people in situ. Because there's always an idea that fashion starts and ends on a particular day almost, and that they cross over and you can see characters. You see, some character would look this way, some character would look the other way.
1: What is one to do when a woman is unfaithful, sir? Force the harlot or live with her like a man what sort of a fellow wouldn't see that but there is or used to be among families of position certain well call it parade was there
0: A feature-length documentary recording the testimony of over 50 people affected by the 7-7 bombings in London was always going to be an ambitious production. But the director of 7-7, One Day in London, Ben Anthony, was also a self-shooter for the majority of interviews. Our man John Maloney spoke to Ben, but before we hear their discussion, let's listen to a moment from the programme, 7-7, One Day in London.
4: Uh, I just want to say something about uh, uh, to. Okay. Shall I start it?
3: Yeah.
4: Yeah. Nitu was my younger daughter, who was killed on 7th of July, year 2005, due to a bus explosion in London. I always see Nitu smiling and laughing, and never saw any disappointment on her face. Nitu was a very special gift from God. As a child, she loved school very much. She was very happy.
6: This film's a bit unusual for me in that half of it was shot by a DOP. There's some studio interviews, lit studio interviews, which I'm not capable of of doing. The other half of the film was shot by me on location in people's homes. For me, there are one or two moments, both in people's homes and also in the studio, that really sort of define what the film's about. And I think probably for me, it's the end of the film where there's a, a guy called Matt who is remembering speaking to the relatives of a woman who died next to him on the train that he was on. And even though he gets terribly upset about it, he's able to talk through his tears to talk about how it was a positive experience. And I think that's, for me, that's the kind of essence of of the film, is that it says a lot of very life-affirming things about what people are capable of doing in crisis situations and how they're able to cope and how they're able to carry on without skating over the fact that these things are very difficult. And I think that's a good note on which to to leave the viewer because it's uncompromising in in its power, but it's actually saying something positive about the fellowship that people find in situations like this.
7: How do you manage that sort of dual uh, mental process of like having one eye on the editorial and one eye on the on the technical side? Is that something that you have to train yourself in?
6: Yeah, it takes it takes getting used to, and you can have bad days where technically things aren't going well and you feel terribly compromised editorially because you're concentrating on the sound not being right or the camera malfunctioning somehow i mean i've never had any formal training at all so i've had to learn everything pretty much in the field i've had to make a few frantic phone calls to a few higher companies from time to time to ask them how to do something i mean usually you can overcome things we have to improvise a bit I mean, the, the truth is, is that most of the equipment that we use for broadcast documentaries are really, is really not that complicated to use. And uh, it's hard to use that equipment really well, but it's not hard to use it well enough.
8: Of course, he was just going through the goth
6: phase.
0: He took and to big, um, big, black, baggy big, charisers. A, the whole black, black outfit. Died his hair top, black. <laughs> Died his hair black. I mean, David was, he
2: was fun. You know, I can't talk about it. You'll have to do it. Yeah.
7: You have to remember, David was 22. And we'd spent 22 years guiding him and, and trying to get him ready for the world. And we got, in fact, we, we, we kind of, when he started this job that took him to London, we kind of breathed a sigh of relief, didn't we? Because we thought, Oh,
0: you've got him done. through his teens.
7: We, we've got him through his teens. No He's, drugs, no, no nothing drugs. to worry about. He's never been arrested. No trouble. He's, we just thought, thank God, thank God for that. And then he started this job and we thought, absolutely fantastic, job done. How can self-shooters prepare in order to make sure that they get great content?
6: I would say to people, don't be too concerned about the picture. I mean, it's got to be in focus and, you know, has to be reasonably pleasant to look at or, you know, the framing has to be OK. But don't, I would say don't get hung up about that because that will come in time. Your eye will sort of develop as you work. The important thing is to make sure that you get meaningful content Because there's nothing worse than something that's shot very nicely but is completely pointless. Whereas you can get away with stuff that's great content but's not shot fantastically well. So my advice would be concentrate on the content first, the other rest of it will come.
0: That was Ben Anthony speaking to John Maloney.
3: Hello, my name's uh, Kevin Sargent. I'm the composer on uh, the second series of The Hour, and I'm lucky enough to be uh, nominated for a BAFTA for my work on that series. The composer's job is to um, add another layer to the the drama. There's plenty of films that can be made without the use of music. That's one sort of aesthetic. But uh, my job often is to uh, enhance, not to amplify, but to um, define the mood of a scene.
4: Daily sketch!
7: Madden so scandal, get it here! Daily sketch!
3: It's a very collaborative job. Uh, a composer well certainly the way I work it tends to be because taking the ideas from the from the directing and the production team like the directors will have strong ideas the editors certainly will
1: the last time I watched this programme one could feel the tingle
3: hear the tick uh, a new character appeared in this second series character of Randall Brown which was uh, played by Peter Capaldi who I, I see is happily up for a nomination for himself for his work there and his character was very eccentric, rather sententious, He, he, he was given to pronouncements, and, and very guarded kind of character, but with enormous uh, sort of hidden depths, we later learned, you know, he, he was holding back a huge, great wellspring of emotion. And we found a piece of music in The Temping, actually it was a piece of music I'd written for something else, but we laid this up against a scene that he appeared in, and it suddenly gave a t- totally different spring to how the character appeared. It enabled us to see the sort of wit in the performance from what a character seemed to be very dry and very forbidding. You suddenly realised this character's actually ahead of everyone else in terms of his thinking, and it made him quite amusing. There's a lovely game to be played with that. So I love, I love writing for character.
9: Hector?
8: there are things i haven't told you about the war things that we did terrible things
3: the opening of episode 1 was a, was a great treat for me it uh, obviously there's a lot of focus on that first scene and uh, it took a few drafts to get it right for everyone's satisfaction the first 5 minutes or actually about 3 minutes of the hour was actually compressed from about 20 in the first episode and it Required a slightly heightened... It was a heightened form of editing, and so I think the music needed to be heightened as well, and, and we wanted to set out our stall. This was the new, the new series of the hour within the, the drama within the drama, the, the, the news programme. So it was, it was a new series for, for the, the characters, and it was a new series for the audience, if you like. So we kind of went to town there with giving it sl- a slightly swingy, slightly swaggering, tongue-in-cheek kind of thing to say, you know, this is... We're, we're having a bit of fun here, don't you? know This is not completely gritty realism here this is this is there's something gamesome about the whole thing here so just, just join us on this game though interestingly enough when we tried to apply that approach after the title sequence in the in the in the drama that kind of level of irony or flippancy didn't work so I had to adjust my tone then back down to what the kind of tone of the hour had been in the first series and interestingly enough Daniel uh, Giorgetti who wrote the the theme and the kind of bookends the entitled things and uh, Uh, wrote the music wonderful music for the first series a lot of my cues were sort of taken from his direction I suppose you like to a certain extent a lot of the work that he'd done there they they didn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but they were working with a different composer so I wanted to put my own stamp on it but building on the work that Daniel had done in the first series so he deserves a fair degree of credit for why I'm sitting here
0: and that was Kevin Sargent speaking to Matt Hill Alongside 2012, two other BBC comedies were given the nod at the BAFTA TV Craft Awards this year, The Thick of It and Getting On. Both of these began life on BBC Four, and both star Joanna Scanlan. I caught up with Joanna at BAFTA earlier this month to talk about her approach to co-writing Getting On. Uh,
10: Josh, can I firm you up later? Um, look, I know in your continent... Um, I just think that vulvas could be a very exciting area for you to get into as uh, your specialism, you know, given some of the more uh, barbaric, uh, for want of a better expression, uh, practices. Um, I mean, although, obviously, who are we in the West to to judge these things? Um, But I, I, I really feel, Josh, if you come on board with my Vajat, you know, by the time you do get back to your part of the world, you will know the intricacies of female genitalia, like the back of your hand.
9: Well, in the early days, we had to develop the characters, and so that each of us... We did that by improvising our characters and what's called hot seating and well-known improvising process. So you put somebody in a seat and you say, who are you and where do you live and how old are you? And, And that's how the initial characters arrived. But now what we tend to do is we have storylining meetings at the beginning where we storyline the whole series in the broad sense before we start writing the first episode. What tends to happen is that Vicki Pepperdine and I write as a partnership and we will structure first drafts pretty much of most of the episodes and then we will pass those around and Jo will bring in things for her character particularly and she'll sort of do a general pass at that stage. So that's been the way it's worked most of the series.
0: Obviously, as the writer and performer in that part of the show, how do you work with the director?
9: Well, we've worked with two different directors. Peter Capaldi, who's the person who started it off, and he, he's got, um, he got had a huge amount to contribute to it, really. He set the visual tone, and he's a very good artist himself. He's got a very strong sense of the visual. So he put that in, and he had, I think, quite a lot of input to and storylining initially and also the way the tone of the way that the stories would go Peter was always talking a lot with us as a director about burying our stories and he helped us a lot I think as writers initially and then we've worked with Sue differently she's not really a script person particularly she says she's not a script person she's actually got a very good storytelling eye so I suppose both directors the one thing they both have in common was encouraging improvising and coming off the page during the shoot that said as the writing has gone on over the years in fact we we do that less and less that it's as, as if the writing now is so instinctive that it carries you know it carries the kind of the, the nugget of what you want to say in a way that if you tried to improvise it, it would be surplus rather than that useful
0: you had a career before comedy writing and performing. How does that experience kind of inform your writing
9: now? I, I think my workplace environment at the Arts Council informed my acting <laughs> during the thick of it or my contribution to the thick of it in terms of that world more than it does for getting on. But well, the one thing I feel spared, which I feel very lucky to be spared, is that hugely competitive sense that actors have because of their drama school peer group that it starts very young that you know there's only there's 21 of us or there's 30 of us or whatever and only one of you is going to make it and the conflict the inner conflict about that and the kind of almost obsession and I feel like I don't have that quite because when I was out there as a teacher and then at the arts council you see everybody everybody does something different there's a sense of a genuine team so I think that's one aspect The other thing is I learnt a lot as a lecturer about how you devise something rather than just, or how you might adapt a text and use improvising, um, Stanislavskian technique, other other methods as well, physical theatre, all of those kinds of techniques. And I did a lot of that, tearing things apart and putting them back together.
10: Ah, sorry, I didn't realise you were here, Mr Loftus. Um, This is highly confidential, uh, pioneering clinical research, so... um, You're not here anyway, are you? Right, Okay. Uh, Yes, thank you.
9: Don't they say, you know, that tragedy is the consequence and relationship between character and action? So who you are forms what you do. And in tragedy, that's where the, you know, technically in the Greek sense, the flaw, the tragic flaw of who you are becomes a, a, a hideous action. And I still think that's the essence of any work that I do is who you are is informing what you do. Now, that gets laughed about in terms of the American kind of cliche of what's my motivation, but there is a reality to that. And when you read a script where that has not been ever thought through, the actor has to make it up for himself to make it work, to make, it make any sense at all. And if I, you know, I can feel very uncomfortable if I don't really understand the, the, the whole person. And I love those writers like, well, Chekhov is probably the, the best example of somebody who's got a cast of maybe 10, 15 characters and every single character is whole. Sometimes it takes time to build up enough knowledge of character to for it to really kick in. And I noticed, I've been watching Breaking Bad recently, and in, uh, when you get to the end of series two, which is just one of those sublime moments where the perfect combination of character and Then what they need is put into total conflict in a given moment and you have to stand there and witness it I kind of look at that and my breath is taken away and I realise I had to wait two series to get to that, that I couldn't have got, there's no shortcuts it takes a long time to build it and obviously on the way you've got to entertain people and keep them hooked and keep them there but it's worth it to be have that much integrity to what your character's purpose is to have the moment when you know your jaw is on the floor with the dilemma that that person finds themselves in i mean it's my aspiration to write at that level
5: i'm sean mckenzie film editor i've been nominated for editing amish a secret life
2: the film was to be about amish family life and faith and a family had been found to take part But by consenting to filming, they risked excommunication from the Amish church. For two weeks, they'd been praying, asking God whether or not they should participate.
7: I'm just trying to imagine what it's like to begin editing a feature documentary. I'm just imagining mountains and mountains of rushes, stuff that was shot not knowing what was going to be useful. How do you go about finding an entry point
5: Most films that there is the subject of the film, they've gathered the material, they've shot for X number of days, how you go about it is working, basically seeing what you've got, letting the people, the directors, tell you what they've got, what their aims are, and getting on top of that material as soon as you can. So masses of material isn't necessarily a, a bad thing, depending on how much you've got. It's getting on top of it in the in the most efficient way possible. I mean, I've just worked on a film, seven-week edit, but I think more than half the film has been shot in the fourth week. You know, scary on the one hand, but on the other hand, I know what we've done in the first three weeks, you know, is the stuff that's been done in week four or trumping all of that, half of it. Or how much is it adding to what we've done? And even though they shot a lot, we've got that down quite quickly. So I've learned not to be intimidated by lots of material and to just keep as clear-headed as possible about what needs to be done.
2: How are you feeling about filming?
6: We have peace with it or we wouldn't be doing it. You know, we, we uh, really sought direction from God and if we wouldn't have got... ..um... If we wouldn't feel we would be okay with him, we would not be doing it. Um, Should we
2: go meet
6: the family? Yeah, yes, please come in.
7: We just spoke to uh, Ben Anthony outside who is uh, telling us about being a self-shooter. And there's a lot of uh, self-shooting directors now making um, factual programming. I was wondering, as an editor, if you'd have any advice for directors or self-shooters who are making, filming their own stuff in order to help the editor and make a better finished product?
5: I I think they're incredibly (laughs) brave to take both tasks on. In terms of what they give me, it's just the same as if it was two people doing the separate jobs. You know, you want to know that they are listening, that they are following the action, they are aware of things that are affecting the interview or the conversation or the scene they're getting coverage in a way that's interesting I mean on um, Amish Secret Life it was a family so Steve Robinson would be hearing the children's conversations behind the adults as he's listening to the adults so they may be having a little Altercation in the background which he could pan over and see. And if it was something one child annoying another in the film, actually, there's, that became a sort of question from Lynn Alloway, the director. How about discipline? Did they get on? The thing about self-shooting is... <laughs> If you've got so many things to think about, the, the main thing I would say is you, you are concentrating on your interview and getting those words, but there is things happening around you. And that's the thing I sympathise with self-shooters the most. How do they sort of cover those other things that are happening? Because it's, it seems, you know, very hard, but to try.
0: And that was Sean McKenzie speaking to John Maloney. And I'm delighted to say that Sean went on to win the BAFTA that evening for Amish A Secret Life. Now, Call the Midwife has been one of this year's biggest drama hits, with almost 10 million tuning into the second series opener at the start of 2013. With so much blood, sweat, and tears on display, the show's makeup designers had their work cut out.
2: My name is Christine Wormtley Cottam, and I was the hair and makeup designer on Call the Midwife, and I've been nominated for a BAFTA.
7: Sorry. I'm
2: So sorry. As regards creating each character, it depends so much on who you who's actually been cast as an individual tend to lend themselves to a certain look that they bring with them, and it's more a matter of working out what actually suits them and still looks as if they've stepped out of the 50s. It's a bit late for that now.
6: She ain't saying it to us, love. She's saying it to him.
2: This was shot on HD and it makes a difference in as much as everything is very, very clear. But uh, so much of your picture depends on your DOP and we were very lucky we had um, very talented DOPs on that. So with some soft lighting and filters, it's kinder for the make-up department. <laughs>
9: Thank you.
2: The development of silicon in prosthetics has made it A lot easier. Silicon is so natural looking, looks just like flesh and the edges on silicon are a vast improvement from the edges of old-fashioned foam which used to be used. For television the makeup artists still tend to be hairdressers, do the hair and makeup, so you need a good basic training in hairdressing and more training in makeup and a lot of determination.
0: And finally this month we caught a moment with Gavin Finney director of photographer on Channel 4's gangster drama The Fear. As the differences between film and television become less about budgets and more about duration, The Fear pushed those definitions even more with a little help from Gavin Finney's cinematography. John Maloney spoke to him earlier, but before that let's hear some strong language and a little recap of what the program entailed.
9: He doesn't
8: need a hospital, He needs a fucking morgue. Alzheimer, dementia, would did they dream all that up? I am
3: not going there. It's your fucking head gone or something, is uh, uh, that what it is?
1: They don't think she's much more than a teenager and some evil fuckers cut her head off. I know your boy's been fucking these Albanian girls. <laughs> I buried you and I'm so sorry.
7: Please, this is
2: wrong. It's... Where is your car?
4: Your car. My father is dead. Shh. This is no longer business. This is blood
7: the fear is very cinematic, right down to its aspect ratio. Do you think that there is an expectation now that TV needs to match cinema in terms of its look and its cinematography?
8: Yes, I think that the audience is very sophisticated visually. I think every generation becomes more and more visually literate and able to decode complex visual messages much more than before. I think if you look at early films and early television, they were quite simple. Not necessarily a bad thing to be simple because you're telling a story, but I think the audience can cope with more information now. And I think they they can enjoy being confused by the edit, confused by the cinematography in a way that kind of leads them into the story and wants them to know more. And certainly the fear was unusual in that the cinematography was a driver of the narrative Quite often, we're required to sort of almost observe and we frame the story, we frame what the action is. In this, the director Michael Samuels wanted the camera to be an active participant in the character Richie's demise into de- dementia. And he really wanted to get inside that actor's head. And that meant a variety of techniques, it meant macro lipstick cameras half an inch from his eyeball as he was walking along or driving it meant ultra wide lenses ultra close in it meant very fluid 360 steady cam moves we used a variety of cameras and lenses and techniques to try and get in his head and that was what was exciting about it that we weren't just watching the actors we were part of the story part of the the drive and the aspect ratio that was uh, 240 which is the cinemascope anamorphic aspect ratio which is a beautiful Aspect ratio to shoot in. You ask any cinematographer what their favorite is, they'll say scope. Absolutely, cinema scope. But there was, again, there's a reason for it. It was because that if you're shooting very close on a different format, a wide, you know, like 69 or 4.3, a close-up fills the frame and you lose the context, you lose their background. It's just face. Whereas this, and we knew we were going to be close a lot, but with a 2.4.0, you can have a close-up and you can see... The room they're in, or the scenery that's behind them. So you can put the close up of an actor in context with their surroundings, which was very important. And it also allows you to have two or three or four close ups in a group, all in one frame. So it was a considered decision to go for that aspect ratio.
7: It's interesting, there seems to be so much going on creatively with the cinematography with this project. Do you feel that you've had more freedom and more um, time allowed for you on this project compared to maybe some stuff in the past couple of decades?
8: There's never enough time. You know, the schedules are insanely tough, harder and harder to do. And it's a run, you know, it's, it's an absolute marathon run in any job you do. And you're always trying to do your best. You could always feel at the end of the day, I could have done better. I wish I had had a little bit more time to finesse things. But they certainly, the producers and director gave us, gave the the camera team, lighting team enough, as much time as they could to do this difficult work because it is more time consuming the way we're filming the fear than the way you might film a standard drama. But you also have to give, you know, we can't hog it all, you have to give the floor to the actors because without them, without the storytelling, you haven't got anything. So, you know, there's no point wasting time on one fancy shot if you miss the the scene. So, you know, everyone has their part to play and everyone needs their time. It was a challenging, tough shoot, but it was a joy to do because it was so interesting to work on. So when you have those sort of challenges, they're fun to overcome.
7: I was wondering whether you could tell us about a specific scene or a specific shot in The Fear that wouldn't have been possible to do a few years
8: ago. Well, I think it's the whole piece would have been very difficult because we use, for instance... um, for his macro close-ups, a lipstick camera called an Iconics HD camera, which is, you know, it's called a lipstick camera because it's the size of a lipstick. It's very, very lightweight. And it has lenses that will focus so close, it'll actually focus to the dust on the front element. And and it's lightweight. So the actor can wear it, literally. We had a modified mountaineering helmet with an arm, and we could put this camera, literally you could hang it a centimetre from his eyeball. And, I mean... Peter Mullen, is an extraordinary performer put up with a lot of indignity in wearing this but he did acting with the camera that close and the way we photographed the car scenes we didn't have any low loaders or trailer work we had all the cameras inside the car using high speed lenses fast cameras we used the Canon C300 we shot at night in Brighton with mostly available light getting the camera into places that would be difficult to do would have been very difficult to do just 10 15 years ago and so we were using the technology to solve problems not just because here's a new piece of kit let's use it because it's fun we used whatever got us the shot we wanted to get to tell the story and what modern technology has given the filmmaker is a vast arsenal of tools where really anything's possible if you can imagine the shot you can get the shot and that's fantastic You tell us about how you got started out as a dop how long have you got i left school uh, as a stills photographer shooting stills and enjoyed that but really loved the whole narrative storytelling of film and started to try and find ways of getting in and at that time there really wasn't a clear route at all you had to if you, anyone you talked to they just looked said well it's mm-hmm. going to be very difficult and it was a closed shop it was the time of the unions but i got a job as a runner at Limehouse TV in the early 80s, which is before even Canary Wharf was developed. But the turning point was getting a place at what was then Manchester Polytechnic School of Film. What Manchester gave me was a chance to practice all of the crafts. But there was this kind of turning point where I was shooting a a project. It was a competition, actually, to create a commercial with one roll of film, one 400-foot roll of stock We'd actually never seen a full roll of film before, we'd just been working on short ends, so just to see a sealed can of real film was amazing. And there was a moment where we were shooting, we did a kind of pastiche of Brief Encounter, and we managed to blag, you know, these are young students, we got uh, the North Yorkshire Mills um, steam railway at night with period cars and everything, and local lighting company helped with the lights, it was extraordinary. And there was a point where I was on the camera and there was a period car coming up to a level crossing and a steam train going through it and all the villagers had come out to watch and I thought, this is great. You know, this is what I want to do, absolutely. And that was it, I was on camera since then.
7: Do you think that there is a clearer route now in,
8: for people to get to the position of DOP? Is there a clear entry? I don't know if it's clear there are, more, there are lots of opportunities, but it may be there's almost too many and it's quite muddied. So cinematography is heavily reliant on production design. It's heavily reliant on the director's vision, on the way the editors put it together even the music track has an effect on it so it, all of it becomes a part and I think that if you're going to become a good cinematographer or if you even want to if you even know you're going to do that job you need to at least have tried those other jobs you may well find actually you prefer post-production you may well find you're better at visual effects or at color grading and I think what you want to do early on is expose yourself to as many of the disciplines as possible rather than just say I want to direct that's probably the lamest thing you can say just try as many things as you can and for that there are a lot more opportunities than there used to be
0: and that was Gavin Finney that's all we have time for today if you've been inspired by any of the topics described in this podcast or if you have any feedback please get in touch at podcast at BAFTA.org remember you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and if you like today's episode leave us a review and help us get up the charts my thanks to all of our guests Gavin Finney Christine wormsley Cotham Sean McKenzie Joanna Scanlon Kevin Sargent, Ben Anthony, Sheena Napier, and John Morton. My name is Katie Campbell. The producer was Matt Hill, with help from John Maloney. Thanks for listening.